You're listening to Resurrection Life with Pastor Nathan Trice. So getting the gospel right, that has been our first priority in this Resurrection Church Membership class. We've looked at the gospel first and it's deeply personal and eternal significance for every human being. And then we've also looked at the gospel in its broadest and most global significance for the glory of Christ Jesus. That first dimension is called by the Apostle Paul, the gospel of your salvation. And that second dimension is called, often by our Lord himself, the gospel of the kingdom. Now again, friends, this is not two gospels. It's the same gospel viewed from two different vantage points, if you will. One is from the perspective of your future and my future. The other is from the perspective of the future of the whole world, of the whole cosmos, in fact. And that gospel, in all of its richness, uh, well, it's what we are uh, seeking personally uh, to experience at resurrection through repentance and faith and obedience to Christ. And it's also a gospel that we're seeking to be part of as followers of Jesus Christ who are seeking first his kingdom. So all that is what we mean by calling ourselves an evangelical church here at Resurrection, a gospel-oriented church. But now, as we go forward, uh, folks, we need to talk about what we mean by that other word. Uh, Now, not gospel, but church. The word church is actually like the word gospel. It begs for defining. And uh, there are few things uh, more relevant to a church membership class than getting clarity on what we mean when we talk about the church. Now, if you were to go to seminary or Bible school, uh, you might hear Uh, teachers of the Scripture refer to something called ecclesiology. That is a fancy word that theologians and Bible students use, taken from a Greek word for church, ecclesia. Ecclesiology is all things that pertain to the Bible's teaching about the church of Jesus Christ. And what I'm proposing that we do in this episode and the one that follows Uh, is to take a kind of crash course on ecclesiology. And along the way, I want to draw out some of the implications of what I'm seeing with you from the scriptures about the teaching about the church uh, for one particular local church, uh, the one that I'm privileged to be part of at Resurrection here in Matthew. So for this episode, three subjects. Uh, The nature of the church, first— the origin of the church, second, and then I'll call it the immensity of the church, third, or if you prefer, uh, what the church is, where the church came from, and how big the church actually is. That'll get us started on our study of this doctrine of the church taught by the Bible. So, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says something famous and relevant to our first topic of the nature of the church. Uh, After asking the disciples, who do men say that I am? 
And hearing varied answers, some say you're John, some say you're Elijah, others say you're Jeremiah. Then Jesus asks this question. Matthew 16, verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, folks, many of you will know that is an absolutely critical text for understanding this first question, what is the church? When Jesus announces his intention here to build his church, we're now asking, what is he talking about? And here's the answer that we would give here at Resurrection to that question, and uh, it's an answer that I want to unpack over the next few minutes. When Jesus talks about his church and building his, his church, he's talking about a community of people in covenant with God gathering for the purpose of worshiping him, being nourished by his grace, and being equipped to advance his kingdom. Now, that definition of the church is what I want to unpack uh, just now. First of all, let's talk about a church being a community of people in covenant with God. Now, I've already mentioned the Greek word for church. It's ekklesia, uh, and it could be translated assembly or congregation or even community of people. So uh, the church, despite the way we often use the word, isn't actually a building. It's not brick or wood or what have you. The church is people, and it's specifically people who've been brought together by their shared relationship with God. So, uh, imagine with me for a moment, you and someone you've never met before, at a young age, both are adopted by the same parents. Now, if that were the case, uh, you would, as one of those two adopted children, you would acquire not only a new relationship with that mother and father, but you would also acquire, by your shared adoption, a new relationship with that other person who was also adopted. So that's what's happening in what the Scripture sometimes calls the family or the household of God. First Timothy 3, verse 15, Paul says, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Here's the point uh, for the moment. When you are brought into a saving relationship with God, you are not brought merely into a relationship with God. You're also, by that, brought into a relationship with the rest of those who are redeemed. You and I can't come into relationship with God without also coming into relationship with one another because we are brought into one family of God. And so the church is that community of people who share 
a covenant relationship with God. Now, I need to do something here uh, that pains me. Uh, I need to ask you (laughs) to let me hold off on defining that little word covenant just for now. I'm going to be coming back to that, just spending a significant amount of time opening up what it means to be in covenant with God. Uh, But for the moment, uh, let me just emphasize that the church is a community of people who are in covenant with God. And uh, hold that thought about the full nature of covenant for just a little bit later. Let's continue with the definition. Uh, A church is a community of people in covenant with God gathering for three purposes. Number one, gathering for the purpose of worshiping God. Now, we've already seen that the element of assembling or gathering is inherent in the very word for church or ecclesia. It's inherent that the church is a gathering of people, but what is the purpose of that gathering? Well, here's the answer to that. It is primarily to worship and adore the one who has redeemed us. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, the apostle says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, you could say worship him, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So friends, Our highest calling, our greatest reason for being as a church, a community of people who gather, is the worship of God, full stop. Even if there were no other benefit to our gatherings, this would be enough. God as creator is worthy of being glorified. He is worthy of being worshipped by his creatures and certainly All the more so, God as Redeemer, who's worthy of our love uh, and our joyful worship, well, he is worthy of our gathering to worship him. So the church is a community of people in covenant with God, gathering first and foremost for the purpose of worshiping him. Second purpose, though, for gathering is being nourished by his grace. Uh, Sometimes those who are very zealous for the first point I've just made about uh, gathering for worship will uh, say things like, we don't come to church to get something, we come to give something. Now, I appreciate uh, the intention behind that uh, statement I've heard more than once, but uh, I would caution uh, we not quite so quickly come to that uh, kind of a conclusion. Listen to how the Apostle Paul uh, speaks in Ephesians chapter 3. It's uh, one of his great prayers for the church, in this case, the church at Ephesus. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints 
what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And listen to this, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. My point here in citing that amazing, that staggering prayer of the apostle is uh, to just simply say the a great apostle certainly sees us as coming to God and coming together uh, to God in worship as not just giving him praise and glory, but also receiving something. God gives himself to his people when they gather. The fact of the matter is no one can give praise to God without being richly blessed in doing it. God has joined those two things together, wonderfully so. We are so thankful that he has done so. His glory and our good, he's joined in a fixed and permanent way in redemption. So, while we gather to offer up to God, to give to God our love and devotion to worship, we are inevitably the primary recipients in it all. John Piper uh, long ago put it very well, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. Hear him putting those two things together, God being glorified and our receiving uh, his grace and being satisfied by it. So the church is a community of people in covenant with God, gathering number one for the purpose of worshiping him, number two for the purpose of being nourished by his grace, and one mother purpose of our gathering, and that is of being equipped to advance his kingdom. Go back to that statement of Jesus to the apostle Peter. He says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now that expression, the gates of hell, is taken from Old Testament scripture language. It also could be rendered the gates of Hades. And in the Old Testament, Hades was uh, simply that realm of the dead, the place where you went after you died. And the picture here, as Jesus speaks, is of a fortress or prison with strong gates uh, where death is king and the dead are held captive. That's the picture of uh, those who have died, they are uh, there uh, in that fortress or prison of death. And yet, Jesus said, the gates of Hades do not prevail. What does he mean by that? I think he means they do not succeed in barring or preventing access by those who would break into that prison and set free those uh, who are in the bondage of death. This is what Jesus is saying, folks. The church is that community of people who have not only been called from death to life, who've been delivered from their own prison of death unto eternal life, but they've also uh, been called to be part of delivering others from that prison of death. And Jesus is saying that the church that he is building will be successful in plundering death itself, the prison of death. So the members of the church, in order to have a part in that calling of, of rescuing sinners from death, will need to be equipped for that work. And so 
Uh, In Ephesians, the apostle uh, speaks of that work of equipping as part of what the church is intending to do as it gathers uh, for worship and to be nourished in grace. It's also to be equipped uh, to advance his kingdom. Ephesians 4.11 says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So, folks, there's actually something very practical and functional about our gatherings as the church. Uh, It's like the gatherings where special op teams are receiving their briefings prior to a mission. Folks, when we gather on Sundays, we're like troops being mustered by our commander. Uh, We're being equipped, instructed by him, in order to be sent out each week to serve him. So, oh, there's so much more that could be said to unpack each of those elements, but that is how we answer the question here at Resurrection, what is the church? The church is a community of people in covenant with God who are gathering for three purposes, the worship of God, the nourishment in his grace that we need, and the equipping to advance his kingdom that we need. Think of that big view of the gospel uh, that we talked about in the last episode, the gospel of the kingdom, and think of our Lord Jesus' call to seek first the kingdom, to have a part in the advancing of his uh, reign in the earth. Uh, That's that last component of our reason for being and our purpose for gathering as the church. So let me tease out just a couple of implications of this way of defining and understanding the church for uh, the local church called Resurrection Presbyterian Church. Uh, Number one, let me say this. We see our assemblies Sunday morning and Sunday evening as vital to our very existence as a church, indeed to our identity as a church, as a Christian and biblical church. Gathering, worshiping, receiving grace, being equipped for service. Folks, that's when we are in the fullest way, the church. And those gatherings are vital to our very existence. Boy, this was certainly driven home to us at Resurrection, like so many other churches, during uh, the COVID crisis of a couple of years ago made very vivid to us how indispensable our gatherings, bodies and souls, our physical gatherings as a church are to our being the church. Now, that hasn't been obvious, uh, it would appear, uh, to every Christian, to every local congregation. Is it really necessary to be in each other's physical presence to be the church and to fulfill our mission? Well, folks, I would say uh, the very definition of church, the very meaning of the word ekklesia, the Greek word that means gathering or assembly, gives us the answer to this question. The defining function of the church is the assembling of saints for these important purposes. That's where the presence 
of the Lord is uniquely enjoyed. Uh, We will be returning to that theme uh, soon enough. Uh, This is certainly not lost on the early church, uh, who suffered things even (laughs) of far greater consequence than a COVID virus. Uh, The church in times of persecution in its first centuries of existence since uh, Christ recognized that they couldn't be the church without their gatherings. And so in some cases, they would take to gathering in in underground tombs. Uh, They called them catacombs. Uh, In secrecy, out of the sight of their enemies, uh, recognizing that they had to come together in order to be the church. That's the first implication of the very definition of church that we see at resurrection uh, so keenly. Uh, And here's how I'll say a second implication of all that I've just done in seeking to put a definition on the church uh, in biblical terms. Uh, As church members, uh, we are to recognize uh, that we quite rightly are both seeking a blessing as we come into the assembly uh, and, and, and are part of the life of the church. We're both seeking a blessing and we're rightly seeking to be a blessing. It's both of those two things that flows out of uh, the nature of the church. Uh, I'm using the word blessing uh, in the two ways the Bible uses it. So, for example, uh, we read in the scriptures things like, bless the Lord, O my soul, and that is our seeking to bless someone else, in this case, of the one we're worshiping. But blessing is also something that we receive, not just give. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow, we sing. So as Christians, as our thoughts of the church um, motivate us in the patterns of our lives, we're rightly to be thinking of ourselves both as desperately needy of the church and also as those who are needed by the church. I sometimes get the sense, talking to people who are in a little journey trying to find a good church home, that one or the other of those two things is larger, more prominent in their minds. Um, Sometimes uh, the thing that I hear is, um, I'm looking for a church where my family uh, and I can be fed. Of course, that's a very good reason to be looking for a church. But other times I I uh, hear someone sp- express, maybe in these terms, I'm looking for a church where I can use my gifts in service. And that, too, is a very noble, a very good reason for uh, looking for a church home. But my point here is simply, as friends, it's both. By the very nature of the church, we're to recognize that we are needy for the church and we are needed uh, by the church. So, uh, that is, in a nutshell, the best I can, uh, answering the question, what the church is. Now, let me move on to a second question, uh, and that is, where is the church from, or where did it come from? What's the origin of this thing we're calling the church? And this is my opportunity to make a very important point Uh, with regard to just how ancient uh, this actually is. 
uh, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, uh, we're right to think of the Christian church as having its beginnings, well, in Christ's ministry. We are right to think that when Jesus says, I will build my church, he's talking about doing something in several important respects, very new uh, for his day. But we would also be very mistaken to think that there in our Lord's day, in Jesus' day, was the very first time that God had ever gathered a community of people in covenant with him for the purpose of worshiping him, for the purpose of being nourished by his grace, and for the purpose of being equipped to advance his kingdom. That would be a grave mistake for us to think that this was happening for the very first time uh, in Jesus' day. Uh, This is where I want to say that the origin of the Christian church lies squarely in the Old Testament age, and specifically with the children of Abraham. That is where our Christian roots lie. That is where uh, the New Testament people of God look back to uh, to find our spiritual fathers. So consider this with me. Just as I've spoken of a certain Greek word uh, that is translated church, ekklesia, there's also a Hebrew word, uh, the Old Testament being written in Hebrew, Uh, that can also be translated church or assembly or congregation. Uh, It's the Old Testament Hebrew word, kahal. And it's found, for example, when God delivers the children of Israel from Egypt, where they were in slavery, and he does so in order that they can gather and worship at his holy mountain. That gathering of the redeemed people of God from Egypt in the worship of God at his holy mountain there in the Old Testament. That's an Old Testament stage of the development of the church. Or when the building of the tabernacle and eventually the temple allows for regular assemblies in the life of the Jewish people, assemblies for uh, the worship of God primarily, Uh, That is the precursor to everything we know of in our assemblies as Christian churches. The Psalms uh, gives expression to this. Uh, Psalm 35, for example, verse 18, the psalmist says, I will thank you in the great congregation. And that's all referencing the fact that the Old Testament people of God, the children of Abraham, were also that uh, covenant community that gathered in order to worship God, be nourished in his grace, and to be equipped uh, to advance his kingdom. So at resurrection, you should know that we speak of the Old Testament church as well as the New Testament church. And we're not losing sight of all the dramatic and, and very obvious changes that take place between the Old Testament covenant community and the New Testament covenant community, but we're recognizing that there is something fundamentally the same about God's purposes for both of those communities. And indeed, the community that we're a part of, the New Testament church, grows directly out of that Old Testament covenant community, the Old Testament 
church. In Acts chapter 7, verse 38, uh, Stephen is preaching, and in his sermon, the word ekklesia, which is the Greek word for church, is explicitly used of the Old Testament people of God. He says, Moses is the one who was in the congregation, the ecclesia, the church in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. So why is this so significant for me to make uh, a point of in the little real estate that we have and unpacking ecclesiology? Well, let me tell you a couple of implications uh, that shape us as a church at resurrection that go to this root understanding uh, of the origin of the church. Uh, number one is that our sense of heritage as a local church goes all the way back to the very beginning. It goes back to the book of Genesis and the things recorded therein that God does. Now, in due time, I'll be talking about how we are a Presbyterian church, and we'll be talking about our Presbyterian heritage at resurrection. I'm just pointing out now that our, our heritage goes much further back than the 16th century in Scotland. Uh, Galatians 3 verse 29 uh, puts it in a fine point. If you are Christ's then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And this is, frankly, exciting to us. It's thrilling to us to think, as one local congregation, that we're a part of something truly ancient, something that goes all the way back to the very beginnings of God's redemptive work in the earth, uh, his work of gathering a people for himself out of fallen humanity in order to worship, worship him, be nourished by him, and be equipped for his kingdom work. Second implication of this view of the origin of the church uh, for the life of resurrection Presbyterian Church uh, is that I'll say it this way, we are a whole Bible congregation. This means that we don't just teach and preach out of the New Testament, uh, but we want both the Old Testament and the New Testament to have their full weight uh, in our life and ministry, our instruction and edification. So we study the sacrifices of lambs and goats from the Old Testament, and that in order to understand the cross of Jesus Christ. Uh, we search the moral laws of Moses uh, for the insight that they give us, the principles that they reveal for us to understand and rightly uh, act with modern ethical issues that confront us. Uh, we sing the songs of David as fitting praise from the Old Testament Psalms for our triune God. We study the words of the prophets of the Old Testament, of course, to understand more of what is yet to come uh, in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, we actually recognize uh, how utterly we, dependent we are on the Old Testament uh, in order to understand the New Testament. After all, the Old Testament is roughly four-fifths 
of the Bible. Romans 15 verse 4 um, encourages us to be whole Bible Christians at resurrection. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So that's a little bit about what the church is. Secondly, about where the church has come from. And let me wrap up with a third point this episode, uh, looking at how big the church actually is. Uh, Now, given what I've said about the origins of the church, you will understand, I think, by now, that um, the global growth of the Christian church is something we see at resurrection as the ongoing fulfillment of God's promise first made to Abraham. Genesis 22, verse 17, God says, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that's on the seashore. This was a staggering promise. It would have been hard to believe in Abraham's day as he waits for his very first son uh, to be born. That promise would still have been hard to believe in Jesus' day as he gathers a relatively small number of disciples. But friends, today, why, today there are over two billion people in the world who at least at some level identify themselves as Christians. Wow. Uh, Something has changed. Something has been uh, happening in the world that is in fulfillment of that first promise that God made to Abraham. Two billion people identifying in our day as Christians. My research indicates that about 36% of those two billion people are in the Americas combined, North and South America. Over 25% are in Europe. Just under 25% are in Africa. About 13%, according to my source, are in Asia. Now, what are we talking about? We talk about the church that is global and that includes so many people. Well, in, a, in an ancient creed uh, that we recite with regularity at Resurrection Presbyterian Church, the Nicene Creed, Uh, We say this, we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. Now, sometimes those words are misunderstood. Uh, They are written long before there is actually a difference between Roman Catholic and Protestant. So, the word Catholic in the Nicene Creed doesn't make reference to the Roman Catholic Church. It's a word that simply means universal. That is to say, the church that Jesus is building on earth is one immense reality. There's only one Savior. That means there's only one church. And friends, it is immense, and it's only getting bigger. Now, thinking about this, well, it makes us at Resurrection Presbyterian Church feel wonderfully small. It does. We are a small congregation in a small denomination in a vast worldwide church. But you know what? 
we love that. We love that we are part of something so big in the world. And we do not forget that our fundamental identity as a little teeny tiny local church is with that one immense and universal church. Now, of course, I realize that could raise the question, uh, and it's a very appropriate and legitimate question and not an easy question. Who should we regard as part of that one holy Catholic and apostolic church? And of course, uh, because we are not able to evaluate where the hearts of all two billion people who call themselves Christians actually are, uh, we can't answer that question uh, with the kind of definitiveness that God alone has. We know well that there are many who profess faith in Jesus Christ who do so apart from any fruit in their life that would show genuineness of their profession. But still, uh, there is one way uh, that we can, at least at a formal level, identify this one universal church uh, in terms of the things that are stated as part of our faith. I mentioned a moment ago the Nicene Creed. It's a creed that's very important in the life of resurrection and very important in the life of uh, so many churches from so many different traditions. Uh, I'm actually going to include in the uh, show notes of this episode a link uh, to the Nicene Creed. It's that important for members of a membership class at Resurrection. And uh, you'll see that uh, the Council of Nicaea called in 325 uh, during a time of great uh, conflict over truth, heresy, and uh, right teaching from the Bible in conflict. The Council of Nicaea was called there in 325. Then the Council of Constantinople was called in 381. And finally, the Council of Chalcedon in 451. These were uh, meetings of the leaders of the Christian church from all over, gathering uh, to state as clearly as they could what are the foundational tenets of the Christian faith, and with it, who is it that we can, with all charity, regard as fellow Christians if they, with their profession, affirm these truths? And the result of that is the Nicene Creed. In my um, link, uh, and it's a handout when I'm teaching a class in person, uh, I just point out uh, how much doctrine, at least in a very summary form, how much essential doctrine, how much essential truth that defines the basics of Christianity is actually contained in the Nicene Creed. You can see the doctrine of creation there. You can see the doctrine of the deity of Christ quite conspicuously, of the incarnation of Christ, of the atonement by Christ, of the resurrection and ascension of Christ, of the doctrine of the second coming of Christ, the doctrine of the deity of the Holy Spirit, indeed the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of Scripture, at least in a very uh, summary statement, the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of salvation from sin, 
the teaching of the Bible about the final resurrection and the life to come. I actually teach in uh, the high school of the Christian school that is a partner ministry with, res- with Resurrection, Gray Friars Classical Academy, a whole year of classes on the theology contained in the Nicene Creed. I call that class Foundations of the Christian Faith. And I tell my students, these are the doctrines that historic Christianity has been in agreement about. It's a very refreshing thing to think about all the things that Christians actually do agree on. And so, in answer to the question, who uh, should we regard as our brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ? Again, recognizing that there can be a separation between profession and life, uh, we charitably regard all those who own for their own creed, the Nicene Creed, as our brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is an immense community of people uh, in this world, in this day. Here's a couple of implications uh, for this reality of the immensity of the church in our day. Number one uh, implication for Resurrection Presbyterian Church, we aspire, this is how I put it, We aspire to be Presbyterian without being provincial. Again, we're going to have opportunity to talk about our Presbyterian heritage, our Protestant, our Reformed, and our Presbyterian theology. Well, uh, we not only embrace that ourselves, but we think that has a lot uh, to offer to the broader church. Uh, We are thoroughgoing Presbyterians at Resurrection Presbyterian Church, and Uh, In all honesty, we'd like to make a Presbyterian out of you. But I'd like to say, in all humility, we're also aware that Presbyterianism is not the only show in town. The church is much, much, much larger than our own Presbyterian tradition. There is insight into God's Word in other church traditions that we Presbyterians need. And there is faithful service by other church traditions that we need to learn from. Folks actually take a great deal of comfort in this fact. The church is an immense reality and a highly diverse phenomenon in the world, even if at times, sometimes that diversity is a little perplexing uh, and even sometimes disconcerting. So we aspire to be Presbyterians without being provincial. And second implication of the immensity of the church for Resurrection Presbyterian Church is that we want to make the most of those truths that unite all true Christians. Here's the reason why I devote a whole year to studying uh, basically Nicene theology in the Christian high school. Uh, I grew up as a Christian kid, uh, growing up in a Christian home. And I realized that many times Christian kids uh, find themselves most interested in those teachings of the church that set them apart from other Christians. Um, They encounter the fact that there are other Christian kids, maybe in their school or in their neighborhood or what have you, 
that don't agree with their family and their church in every point. And so I experienced this. Our attention naturally is drawn to the things that separate Christians, the doctrines uh, that divide us, if you will. That's a little bit unfortunate uh, that that would become our primary focus uh, as kids growing up in Christian homes because it's not the doctrines that we disagree on as Christians that are most important to our faith. Uh, They're not even the doctrines that are most uh, offensive to the world. It's the foundational doctrines, the ones that we are uh, most likely to be attacked about uh, by the world, that are the ones Christians happen to agree on. It's easy to forget this, I think, uh, that all Christians throughout the world, in all traditions, agree on the most fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith, and we want to make the most of those doctrines while still holding up those distinctives we've come to love and embrace in our particular tradition. Well, my friends, uh, that is what the church is in a nutshell. That's where the church came from, also in a summary form. And that's something of how big, how immense the church actually is. We're not done talking about the church in this church membership class, but we'll uh, finish for today. Next time we get together, I want to talk about the ugly, the good, and the glorious about the church of Jesus Christ in our world. But those things will wait. Uh, Friends, thank you for sitting in on this um, portion of our church membership class. Uh, The Lord keep you. Uh, Christ is risen. You've been listening to another episode of Resurrection Life with Pastor Nathan Trice. This is a ministry of Resurrection Presbyterian Church in Matthews, North Carolina. And if you've enjoyed today's podcast, please consider sharing it with someone you know. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.